If you were here last week, you know that we started a, a brand new series that we are really, really excited about. And uh, this series is going to take us into March, probably early March, maybe even beyond that. And so uh, we've got a little bit of a road ahead of us here, a lot to dig into and, and hopefully understand and apply to our lives. And so we're going to jump right into things today, make sure we can get through all of it. So the title of our series is Words Matter. And the subtitle, as you can see there, is Understanding Spiritual Language, okay? And so last week, we started by simply talking about what is the purpose and the intent of this series. And ultimately, what we said is, it is of the utmost importance that we rightly understand and comprehend what Scripture is actually trying to tell us, right? This is important for us. It's ultimately going to be a huge factor in shaping how we understand God, how we understand who we are, and ultimately how we understand what we are to be about. And so we must securely understand what is going on. And yet the truth of the matter is these days, a lot of times, we'll read right past things in Scripture and not really understand what we just read, even at times if we think that we understood what we just read. Many times we're applying assumed definitions or, or cultural understandings today that didn't apply back then, and so we're very much misunderstanding what the biblical writer was trying to say. And so... This series, in many ways, is about trying to, to right-size that, right? Trying to really bring this home so that as we read through the Bible, we can truly comprehend what it is talking about and how we can therefore respond. And so what we said we're going to do is we're going to take a single word, a single concept, and we're going to dedicate an entire message to each one of these words. And so that's what we did last week. We took the concept of love, and we dug into it, and we unpacked it, and, and tried to lay out a foundation of understanding so that as we read this in scripture, we can go, okay, I know what is being communicated. So we talked about the first century understanding, right? The kind of New Testament world understanding. We talked about our modern day understanding, kind of brought the two together to see if we can't apply this rightly to our relationships. What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to, to love God? These are very important things. And so I hope that you have continued to dig into that. I hope that you have continued to digest that and, and apply that to your life. And so today we're going to turn the page. We're going to get into the second word of our series. But before we do that, I want to give just a few qualifiers that are going to apply to today's message and really this series as a whole. Okay, You're going to see these things continue to come up throughout the entirety of it. And the first thing is this, um, one of the important facets of this series to me, one of the reasons I, I really wanted to dig into this is to learn how to do a better job of dealing with nuance. And what I mean when I say that is we have a really bad habit of looking at things through this very narrow lens in our culture. Okay, we do this with a lot of things in a lot of different ways, and it's often very damaging to our overall perspective. And in particular, with spiritual words, one of the things we like to do is we like to make a concept the whole concept, okay? We, we actually did a series about this, it's uh, years ago now, where we talked about this, and we, we showed how this works with certain topics that we're familiar with. For instance, are we to be people of love or people of truth? 
Which one is it? Um, Are we to live in prosperity or are we to live in poverty? Which is it? Are we to have faith or are we to have works? Like we treat these like they're separate opposing concepts when in reality, it's, it's always somewhere in the middle, right? There's nuance in play that we need to be aware of. We talked a little bit about this last week, even with the concept of love, because we like to put love in this corner of either a decision or the feelings and emotions that come with it, right? It's one or it's the other, but really the the magic of it is in seeing how those two come together and operate alongside one another. There's an old theological saying that says, when you try to make a half-truth the full truth, you're simply left with an untruth. And oftentimes this is what we do in our culture and even when it comes to spiritual concepts. So we have to learn how to deal with these complexities. We have to learn how to hold tensions in place if we're gonna truly achieve understanding. So we're gonna see some of that today and even beyond as we move forward, okay? The second qualifier is this. One of the really cool things about studying spiritual language is studying spiritual leaders. What I mean by that is in order to rightly understand literature, you have to rightly understand the writer of that literature. And so one of the really interesting and unique aspects of our biblical writers is that they were both communicators and innovators. And what I mean by that is they were both products of their environment and contributors to it. So much of our New Testament is rooted in a specific culture and a specific language that we need to study and we need to understand. And yet at the same time, these disciples and these early leaders that we read from are in many ways framing up these new thoughts and ideas that in their time would have been quite innovative. I'll give you a quick example of this with the word apostle. We see this oftentimes um, in the New Testament. Uh, you've heard it here in this context probably because I talk all the time about the Apostle Paul, right? Um, and so you've probably heard that. This word apostle um, is a deeply Greco-Roman concept that represented a leader who was sent out to discover, to conquer, and ultimately to establish new territories in the name of Rome. Okay, so in Jesus's time, this is how these people would have understood it. Some sort of probably governmental leader who was sent out to conquer, establish new territories, and then to bring the the cultures and the environment of Rome to that place. In other words, to spread their influence. That is what their job is. So what Jesus does is he takes the core of that word, but applies it to his own context, right? So the, the core remains the same. Someone that's sent out to conquer and establish new territories. Context is different because now they're doing it in the name of Jesus. They're spreading the influence of Jesus. And so it's really interesting how they're, they're, they're both experiencing the environment around them, but contributing to it as well. And we'll see that in our word today because Paul does that exact same thing. He takes this commonly understood word or concept, but then it twists it and applies it in a really new and powerful way. In fact, um, in many ways, the way that we understand this word today is because of Paul's evolution of it. And and we'll see that as we go through this today. So with all of that being laid out there, let's go ahead and jump into the second word of our Words Matter series. And so the second concept that we really wanna dig into today is the concept of faith, all right? The concept, the word, faith, all right? Now I wanna say a few things before we begin to really dive into this. Um, The first thing is this, We are intentionally starting this series 
with some really foundational words. And the reason that we're doing that is because ultimately we need to lay this foundation in place so that as we get into maybe some kind of like loftier concepts, the foundation remains the same. In many ways, love and faith are gonna frame how we see everything else, okay? In fact, our our word next week is very much framed by one of these first two words. And so we wanna lay out this foundation, make sure we're secure in it. But here's the second thing. Faith is a huge concept. All right, it's huge. And I think I already knew that, but I I learned that in a totally new way this past week because I'm telling you, I don't think I've ever had to delete or remove more notes, more scriptures, more concepts to give you some sort of succinct message today. I mean, there's so much when it comes to this idea. So I think today is gonna be hopefully a a content-rich type of message. So as always, get your notes out, take thorough notes. You're probably gonna have to go back to them and digest them a little bit more. But at the same time, there's so much more to be discovered about faith. And so I want you to continue to dive in, continue to learn these new things and apply them to your lives, okay? So here's where I wanna start. I wanna start by actually comparing this concept of faith with the concept we talked about last week of love. And reason being, interestingly enough, we see these two words used quite often together throughout the New Testament. One of the things I did this week is I went through and and looked at every single verse in the New Testament where the word faith is used. And I was a bit stunned at how often love was somehow included within that. These two are very often connected. And you'll probably see why that is as we move through today. But we see some interesting similarities and some interesting differences between the two that I wanna start by calling out. And so let's begin with the, the similarity. The main parallel that we see see between these two concepts is really in the way that we treat them today, Um, which is to say faith is another one of these concepts that in our culture um, we look at and we talk about in this very mystical, this very intangible, this very ethereal type of way, right? Again, another concept is floating in the air. We have to try to get hold of it or or get our arms around it, right? We, We probably all have looked at faith in this type of way at some point in time. And yet here's the thing about faith. Faith actually had a very clear understanding in the New Testament time. I mentioned last week how if you were gonna say the word love um, in the first century world and first century uh, language, there could be seven or eight different ways that you could say that, right? Depending on the context, depending on the relationship, you could hit it from a lot of different angles. But with this word faith, there was really only one way that these people would historically use this word, which means it shows us that this concept actually had a great deal of clarity in their culture and in their language. In fact, I made the comment last week that the Bible uh, is not a textbook, right? So it doesn't give us definitions or meanings like we kind of hope it would. This is one of the rare exceptions to that because we actually do see a pretty clear description in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So let's go to that. By the way, um, Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. So that entire chapter is just full of this concept of of faith. So if you're going to start somewhere, that might be a a good place to go. Hebrews 11 uh, begins this way, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. All right, this is the King James Version. This is how I heard it over and over again throughout my childhood, so that's why I went to it. But I want to read it again, so maybe you can just like soak it in. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So what we see right out of the gate with the writer of Hebrews here, 
is that um, they're not seeing it in the same way that we see it today at all. Uh, he's not treating this as ethereal or as intangible. He's literally using words like substance and things like evidence, some of the most grounded words that we have to explain a concept. And he's applying it to the idea of faith. So, so let's begin to dig in, see what we can learn here, see what maybe we can unpack a little bit further. And let's start with the actual Greek word itself, okay? So if you're reading through the Bible and you stumble upon the word faith at some point, uh, if it's a good translation, 100% of the time, it will be this Greek word, and that is pistis. All right, we'll put it on the screen so you can see what that looks like. Maybe take note of it. Pistis would be how it is pronounced. Now, as I said, this word pistis uh, was a very clear term for them and, in fact, would have been understood through a few primary concepts, okay? So like last week, we're going to kind of comb through this, see if we can't really get the full scope of what this is about. So the idea of, of pistis or faith as it relates to the first century people, first century culture would have first been understood through the lens of belief, all right? In many ways, um, this is kind of the first filter that, that, that they would bring it through, would be this idea of belief. Now, when I say belief, um, for them, that was mainly an intellectual endeavor. That is to say, to believe that something is true or not. That's a, a matter of your mind. And we see this working itself out in many different ways throughout Scripture. For instance, let's go back to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That word evidence would have been directly understood as belief. In other words, it's, it's proof. It's an objective truth, right? This is what we are dealing with. We see the same thing in Acts uh, 1. Verse 3, when it says that Jesus presented himself to the apostles by many convincing proofs. Okay, again, it's that, that evidence. It's an intellectual belief that this is indeed true. This is what Paul has in mind when he says faith comes from hearing. In other words, you, you have to hear it and believe it to be true before you can take any further steps. So faith and belief were two ideas that were often linked together in the minds of the first century people. In fact, the Greek word for belief, and we'll put this on the screen as well, is pistiwo. So pistis, pestivo, you can see the similarity. There's a lot happening in the language here that would link these two together. So the first filter, the first aspect of faith for these people would have been belief, okay? The second would be allegiance, all right? So if you said the word faith, this is something that would come to mind for these people, which is simply to say, this person has my devotion, right? We see this in the derivative faithfulness, right? In other words, um, I'm not going anywhere, right? I'm, I'm here with you. I'm on your side. Now, this idea in the first century would have held within it um, some very serious political and military overtones, all right? In other words, it pointed to loyalty. It pointed to, to dedication. And so this was a very important aspect of common life to them, and therefore an important aspect of faith as well. So we have belief, we have allegiance, and then the third one is trust, all right? The idea of trust. Now listen, in the first century world and context, this would have been their clearest understanding of this idea we call faith. In other words, it represented just your everyday trust, trustworthiness, reliability, like this was the heart of this to the ancient Eastern 
people. And we actually see this again in Hebrews 11, verse one. It says, substance of things hoped for. Now those two words, hoped for, literally together are one of the Greek words for trust. In other words, what the writer is saying is faith is the substance or the working out of my trust. That is what is being communicated. Now, listen, that working out piece would have come about in two major ways, all right? Again, trust is a big concept, so they would have kind of broken it down into two big chunks. And the first one would be this, the idea of confidence. In other words, if I trust you, I'm confident in you. I'm confident in your character. I'm confident in your actions. I'm confident in who you are. I have this inner assurance that is driving me in this relationship. This is uh, the context in which the writer in Hebrews eleven six would have said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, that's a big statement, right? Without faith, it is impossible to to please God. That alone shows us that this is something worth diving into, right? What the writer is communicating is if you have a lack of confidence in God, meaning if you don't trust his character or his plans or what he's up to, then then there's something wrong in your relationship with him, right? There's a disconnect. There's something that isn't Right. In fact, this harkens us back to the father-child relationship that scripture often points us to, right? Trust is so important. In fact, I'm learning this um, from my daughter recently. She's about to turn five in, uh, what, about a month. She's about to turn five, which means that she's, she's learning a lot these days. She's growing in knowledge. She's understanding some things. And so naturally, she thinks that she has to be less dependent on me, right? She, she doesn't trust me as much. So uh, whether it's a concept or a secret or some sort of task that needs to be completed, she's not trusting me. And so several times recently, I've literally sat her down and I said, hey, hey, baby, do you not trust that I have your best interests at heart? Like, do you not trust that that I know what's best for you and and I want to keep you safe and and I want you to flourish? Do you not trust that? Like, I'm having these conversations with her because the truth is, as a father, it hurts if she doesn't trust me. I mean, that's, that's painful if she's not depending on me. And this is very much the sense in which that scripture is written. So confidence would be the first idea. The second would be commitment. So when we talk about the idea of trust, inherently, we have to talk about commitment. Now, we talked a lot about this last week, but in this context, what that means is even in the moments where I don't have that evidence, even in the moments where I'm not 100% sure, I'm going to remain committed. I'm I'm not going anywhere, right? This is what Paul had in mind in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, when he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, even if I don't know what's around the corner, I'm still here, I'm still faithful, I'm still committed. That's what trust looks like. And so this is how these people would have understood this. These are the, the three foundational aspects of how they would have come to know and apply the idea of faith, belief, allegiance, and trust. And when you put those three together, you, you really begin to see just how dense and important this really is. For instance, if you split them apart, you know, I, I can believe something to be true without giving my allegiance to it, right? That, that I can do that. I can believe the sky is blue. It doesn't mean I'm loyal to that or I'm engaged in that in any sort of deeper way, right? Likewise, I can give my allegiance to something without really trusting it. Again, in biblical times, there would have been some heavy political overtones. And the truth is, people were very much loyal to Rome. 
didn't exactly trust the leaders or the lawmakers or all the things that were going on. So there was a bit of a disconnect. And so the magic of faith, listen, is in the coming together of all three of these in this really beautiful and powerful way. That's what faith is, okay? Now, one of the clearer places that we see kind of this threefold nature in play within scripture is in Romans chapter 10. And we're gonna start in verse eight. We read this. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with we are, which we are preaching. What's that word of faith? Verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, that's allegiance, right? He's my Lord and believe, there's the belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a, a fundamental scripture that we apply and live by. Now, at this point, you might be raising your hand. Where's the third component? I only heard two in there. Where's the trust aspect of what Paul is saying? Well, it's in there because did you notice Paul made an intentional distinction in his verbiage? He didn't just say, believe that God raised Christ from the dead as if it were a matter of head knowledge. What he says is believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, when he says the word heart, and this goes for any time you see heart in scripture, what he's talking about is your will, meaning the things that you want, the things that you choose to do, your desires, what you put your heart to, that's what it's pointing to. So what Paul is saying here is, I want you to believe this, not just in an intellectual way, but in a way that like gets hold of your guts. That's the type that I'm talking about. Because see, this is the other thing about trust we have to, to take notice of, and that is it engages us meaning it, it leads to action. Again, you can believe something to be true without it affecting you, but when trust gets involved, then it begins to impact your decisions and your desires and, and your actions, right? And that's what Paul is pointing to here. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, meaning trust it, commit it to the extent that it changes you from the inside out. That's what he is communicating. So we see belief, allegiance, and trust so beautifully laid out in this point of scripture, okay? So now that we've laid a bit of a foundation of what this means, or, or at least what it meant to the biblical writers, which is what we're interested in, let's talk about a few of the things that we can immediately take from that, because there are some things immediately we can kind of snatch from that, maybe in how we've misunderstood or misapplied this in the past. And the first thing is this, what this shows us about the true idea of faith is that faith is not an anti-intellectual pursuit, okay? That's not what faith is. Many times when we use that word today, people immediately think about it in terms of like a lack of knowledge or substance. It's blind hope, right? That's often how we use the word, but that's not what faith is truly about. And let me give you an example of maybe how this would work itself out in a more common way these days, okay? If you're a parent, um, and so you have a child or children, at some point in your experience, you have probably hired or brought in a babysitter or a caretaker, right? That's probably something you've experienced, whether it's for a night, for a weekend, whatever, you've probably done this. Now, the truth is, as a parent, allowing somebody to take care of your children while you're away takes an immense amount of faith, an immense amount. Of, you're, you're trusting this person to protect your child. You're trusting them to be a good influence. You're trusting them to keep good habits in place. You're putting a lot in this person's hands. However, I can guarantee you did not put your faith in them without first doing some sort of intellectual groundwork, meaning maybe it was a trusted referral. 
Maybe it's somebody that you already knew, so you knew you could trust them. Maybe um, your child attested to their abilities. Whatever it is, some sort of intellectual process has helped inform that faith. And that's how this concept works. Listen closely. Faith and intellect are not enemies. They're not enemies. Again, let's hold the proper tensions in place. These things work together in a really beautiful and amazing way, and we need to be aware of that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, and this is, this is heavy, okay? We, we very much need to get hold of this. What this shows us is that faith is foundationally relational. It's relational. Now, what I mean when I say that is, Listen, faith is not transactional. It's not some sort of commodity that we have. Faith is an intrinsic part of a love relationship, all right? So, so for instance, let me show you how these distinctions might play out. If I were to say the word money, or if I said the word car, or something like that, you immediately log that mentally, even to some extent emotionally, as a commodity, meaning something to possess, something to buy, something to sell. You log it immediately in that context. On the other hand, if I say the word love or if I say the word trust, you immediately log that as relational. In other words, there's something deeper. There's something that's connecting me to another person that I need to be aware of. So what does that mean? It means when our biblical writers use the word faith, they are almost always talking about it in a relational type of way which is to say they are almost never talking about it as like a body of beliefs that we are to hold to. Again, they didn't look at it as like a, a product or a, a commodity. Now, centuries later, early church leaders would begin to use it in this way. But foundationally, faith was about trust. It was about connection. It was about relationship. That was the heart of it, which leads us to an absolutely fundamental aspect of how we use this word in our context. And that is when we talk about faith or having faith, we must always understand we are speaking specifically of faith in Christ, okay? If you wanna know what we mean when we say that, or if you wanna know what Christian faith is about, that's it. We have relational faith in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying. Now, let's, let's take a step back. Let's remind ourselves of what that really means. Again, we're not just gonna skim right past it. What does that mean for us? That means we believe in him. That is to say, we believe in the historical Jesus, right? Who he was, what he did. Intellectually, we believe that to be true. This is an important aspect of our faith. However, that alone does not distinguish us, right? It's great, it's necessary, but that doesn't set us apart. Just like saying, we believe Julius Caesar died in, in 44 BC or we believe the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We know these things to be true. It doesn't distinguish us in any sort of way. And this is the importance and the depth of the trust and, and that allegiance piece. Because when we say that we have faith in Christ, what we're declaring is that he has our everything, right? He has our commitment. He has our confidence. He has our devotion. He has our loyalty. We are putting our life in his care. That's what we're saying. And that's what distinguishes us. Okay? This is one of the reasons why we kind of need to be careful when we simply say things like, I'm a person of faith, or I am faith-filled, 
because that's probably not communicating what we really mean. Everybody has faith in something or someone. Every day, really, we're exhibiting faith of some kind. But to say that I have faith in the person of Christ, who he is, what he's done for me, now we're talking, right? Now we're getting to the good stuff because what we're saying now is that our faith isn't shaping Jesus. Rather, Jesus is shaping our faith. And that's very much how we need to understand this, okay? Now, um, in the interest of digging into specific words, the word hope works the same exact way. Okay? A lot of times we treat hope like it's a commodity, like it's something off on its own. No, no, we have hope specifically in Jesus and who he is and what he's up to. That is Christian hope, and that's very much how we need to understand it. Okay, So this is how this stuff begins to work itself out. Now, all of that is good. All of that is great. Hopefully it's helping our understanding and our perspective and all that good stuff. Now we need to talk about some very important implications that that has for our lives. In other words, if we're serious about having faith in Christ, we must understand how this engages and impacts us in our lives, okay? And so we're gonna have some callbacks to the foundation we've already laid, but I think there are some new things that we can take from it. So number one, the first implication is faith in Christ, true faith, Christian faith, means true engagement and action, all right? Faith is engaging. It must lead to some sort of activity. It's the coming together of knowledge and living, of intellect and activity. It's all these things coming together in a way that actually plays itself out in our lives. So let me use an example of how this kind of um, distinguishes itself in our verbiage. In, in our culture today, if I were to say, I believe in unicorns, all right? If I made that comment, I'm communicating something uh, very, very specific, okay? I'm not communicating that, like, I, I, I'm putting my trust in that or that I'm engaging in that in any sort of way. I'm simply saying I believe in the existence of unicorns, right? Very, very specific. And that actually shows us something unique about our culture and how we use these words. So let me compare our, our modern-day culture with biblical times for a moment. If I were to walk up to somebody today and I were to say to them, I urge you to believe in God, or even I urge you to have faith in Christ, what they are most likely thinking, I'm trying to say culturally, is that you need to believe in his existence, right? You, you need to believe that he is real. That's how they would translate that. In fact, many times when we do like a call to salvation or something like that, the vast majority of people naturally think that that's what they're doing. They're declaring that God is real, that he does indeed exist. That's how we understand things Today, However, if I went back in time and I existed in the, the first century world and I was walking around somewhere in the Middle East and I ran into somebody and, and I said, please believe in God or please have faith in Christ, no one would have had any issue with the idea of God or a God existing, okay? In fact, that would have been an assumed truth for them. Remember, in this time and in this culture, you have two primary uh, groups. You've got the Jews, you've got the Greeks, Jews would have believed in the one true God of Israel. Greeks would have believed in thousands of gods, right? So existence wasn't a concern. Really, it wasn't even a, a something to be considered, which means they would understand if I say, have faith in Christ. Immediately, they would know what I'm talking about. I'm saying, commit to Jesus, be faithful to Jesus, put your heart in Jesus. They would have immediately known and understood what I Am saying. Now, their response to that is, you know, something different. Maybe it would be similar to, to what we encounter today, but the understanding 
would be there. Now, why is this relevant? Okay, what's important about this? Well, because I think this might be part of the reason we really struggle with the concept of faith today. And as a result, while Christianity, um, many ways uh, in in the, the West primarily, why it's become so shallow and so disengaged. And that is because in our culture, people think it's perfectly well and good to confess God is real and then go on living their lives as they always have, right? That's, that's cool, okay, God exists. Let me go about my business. And what I'm saying is it's vital that we understand this is not what the biblical writers are saying when they use the word faith. What they are imploring us to do is give our lives to Christ. Put your trust in him alone. And and, in fact, this is essentially, for the record, what we're saying when we call Jesus Lord. That's what we're saying. I believe in him to the extent that it engages me and it changes me, to the extent that he now rules and governs my life. That's what I'm saying. Now, what does that mean? That means that he determines what's important to me. He determines what my priorities are. And so if he says, love your enemies, that must change the rules of my life. If he says to to give to the needy and take care of them, that must engage me in how I live and operate. That's what we're talking about. Faith must engage us. It must bring us somewhere. This is why scripture says live by faith, walk by faith. Like there's something that ought to take root in our hearts, okay? Now this leads us to the second implication. And this is kind of a a fun one. And that is if, if it's engaging us, if it's bringing us somewhere, that also means that it must take us to a willingness to take risks. Faith means a willingness to take risks, okay? Now, this points us to that, that confidence piece that I was talking about earlier, which is to say, you know, I may not be able to see it, but, but I'm confident in your character. I'm confident in your motives. I'm confident in your plans. There is this inherent risk factor that is in play. By the way, this applies to every relationship in your life, whether you realize it or not, this is how it works. I'll use my marriage as an example. I didn't get in trouble last week, so I'm going back to, to the well. But but the truth is, if, if I don't trust my wife, if I'm not confident in who she is and, and what she's up to, think about how much that paralyzes me in my relationship with her. Think about that. If I don't trust her, I don't, I'm not going to leave her alone by herself. Um, I'm not going to leave her out with other people without me. I don't trust her, right? Um, I, I don't know how she's going to respond when I do certain things or say certain things, right? I'm completely risk averse in everything that I do, right? It paralyzes me. However, if the opposite is true, if I do trust her, everything's completely different. It frees me up in that relationship. And this is very much how it works with Christ. If I'm confident in who Jesus is, that is to say his character, his plans, his power, his authority, think about how much that frees me up and how I come to know him and follow him. Think about it. If we were truly confident in him, what would we be willing to do in this life? If we were really confident in who he is and what he's capable of, how far would we be willing to go for him? See, this is a huge aspect of faith in our relationship. In fact, I want you to think about for a moment, just ponder the biggest risk that you've ever taken in your relationship with God. Right now, like seriously, reflect. What's the biggest risk that I've ever taken in my relationship with him? Maybe it was a decision, some action that you took, whatever it is, I want you to get that in your mind. Here's the truth of it. That risk was directly connected to your trust in him. In fact, I would go so far as to say the level of the risk you took is up to the level of trust and confidence that you have in him. 
which is to say, if you're finding it hard to think about risks that you've taken for him, or maybe you can think of some small examples, but nothing beyond that, maybe that should tell us something about the level of trust, level of confidence that we have in him. Maybe do some self-reflection of where we're at in our relationship with him. If we truly have faith in Christ, we are gonna be a risk-taking people. That just must be part of who we are because that's how big he is, okay? Now, this leads us to the third and final implication, and this is where we're gonna wrap things up today. And, uh, and this is the most important thing, okay? You ready? The third and final implication is this. Faith in Christ ultimately means making Jesus the center of your life. Making Jesus the center of your life. Last week, we talked about our number two value, love all people. Now we're talking about number one. Jesus is the center of of our lives. Now, what do I mean when I say that? I'm gonna slow down because I want you to soak this in. Listen, what that means is if your faith is truly in Christ, that means your trust must be in him alone. Meaning this, this is not about trusting that you'll get what you want. This is not about trusting that he'll be your divine genie in a bottle. That's not what this is about. Faith in our context must be centralized on the person of Christ, which is to say faith that he loves you, faith that he's with you, faith that he's enough whether you get what you want or you don't. That's what faith in Christ ultimately means. This is yet again one of those things that distinguishes us in our faith and who we are. Because the truth is much of our culture is built on the basis that things are supposed to go my way right? Whether we realize it or not, this is often the narrative that we spin. This is the expectation that we live in, right? And so as long as I get what I want, then I can experience joy, and then I can experience peace, and then I can experience fulfillment, right? That's honestly how most of us naturally think, and yet faith in Christ says something entirely different, which is regardless of how things go for me, regardless of what I get, regardless of what I experience, Jesus will be there, and he's enough for me. That's what faith ultimately points us to, okay? We, we have to take hold of this. And then here's the cool thing that happens. Listen, if Jesus is your joy, and if Jesus is your peace, and if Jesus is your fulfillment, nobody can take that from you. There's nobody, there's nothing that can sneak that away from you. You will be set securely in that. And see, this is the reason why I talk about the Apostle Paul so much. Because if he signifies anything in scripture, it's this. This was an amazing man of faith, amazing man of faith. It's no wonder why he's the one that, that talks about it so much and, and gives us such a good definition of it. Here's the thing. Paul went through an unbelievable amount of pain in his life. We don't, we don't know anything about this because of the world, the culture, the convenience we live in. He went through an amazing amount of pain talking about a man who was persecuted. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was snake bitten. He was ultimately killed for the cause of Christ. Yet it's the same man that says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. See, see his joy, his peace was so secure in Christ nothing could take it from him. He was untouchable. You couldn't mess with him. You couldn't move him. That's what faith brings us to. That's what we're talking about when we say we must live a life of faith. Ultimately, Jesus is the center and he is the one 
that we trust in.